welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week, we are very excited because we are finally covering And Then There Were None. This is so huge. It is. It is I believe Agatha Christie's best-selling novel. Oh, just about north of 100 million copies sold to date. <laughs> Sixth best-selling book overall, according to at least one list. But and the best-selling mystery novel. Indisputably the best-selling mystery ever. Yeah. Yep, no pressure here. <laughs> just a little obscure title. We'll take a little look-see, see what we make of it. <laughs> yeah, so in this episode, we are just covering the novel and briefly, we'll touch on the play version that was also adapted by Christy. Uh, we are saving the film adaptations for a separate podcast because, boy, Kemper, there are sure a lot of them, aren't there? There are so many of them, and we are very excited to be able to announce that we will be doing that episode with our good friend, our dear friend of the podcast, Mark Aldridge, who we talk about and reference so many times. He is the expert on all things Christy in the film and TV world. So we had a great time talking with him in Murder on the Orient Express. It feels appropriate to bring him back in to find our way through the many, many adaptations of this novel. Conveniently for timing, I think this episode is coming out right about when we released our episode of Murder on the Orient Express. Hey, there you go. Midsummer Christie blockbuster season. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tis the season. Tis the season for blockbusters, sure. No, Tis the season for blockbusters, absolutely. Well, we have a little bit of business that we need to talk about, I think, up front. Mm. We are talking about the publication history right now. Yeah, normally this is not such a hot sort of topic within our, our podcast dates. episode. You know, we give some dates. We talk about some alternate titles. We mm-hmm. muse as to which title we think is the best one mm-hmm. or why it even exists, etc., etc. Then we have a more complicated issue yes. here. It was first published in the UK in November 1939 by, of course, Collins Crime Club. And uh, then it was published in 1940 in the US by, of course, Dodd So far, so good. Mm-hmm. So in the US in 1940, readers got a book called And Then There Were None. The first edition of the book was not called that. It was called yes. Ten Little N-Words. We will not be saying that word on the podcast. No. We will be sticking to that rule that we have kept thus far. Uh-huh. And this was a title that it would continue to be published under in the UK and in the Commonwealth up until, I think, 1977. And that's not even including reprints, which continued to come out even later than that. Yeah, I think there was one really late Australian version of the book in 1980 that still had that title, but that was an outlier. And then the UK title switched over at that point too, and then there were none. What's interesting to me about the title thing is that I had thought before we had to do research for this episode that 10 Little N-Words had then been changed to 10 Little Indians, which at the point at which it had been changed was not offensive at all. Then that title in turn became somewhat offensive or at least just problematic and the titles morphed to its final version of and then there were none but that's not what happened no. it really was and then, there, and were then none. there were none from the beginning in the US and in the UK it changed over from the original title to and then there were none there's this weird interregnum period <laughs> where it was published from about the mid 60s till the mid 
mid-80s in the U.S., in some U.S. versions as Ten Little Indians. The only thing I could find out to make sense of this is that the theatrical adaptation that Christy herself wrote was produced in Broadway and published under the title Ten Little Indians. So perhaps the U.S. audience was just more familiar. There was some familiarity with that title. We also have the nursery rhyme, which we will get into that's used in the book. There is a version of that nursery rhyme that seems to use the word Indian or Injun. Right. So personally, I'd like to call it 10 vertically challenged indigenous peoples. Well, or we can just call it, and then there were none. Or then there were none. So, I mean, to be clear, and obviously you just touched on this, the title is clearly appalling as it is to say out loud in 2018 she didn't pull it out of thin air there is a history to it yes an american one it's a little murky what the actual timeline is but basically there are two versions of a 19th century rhyme so in it looks like 1868 and 1869 you know you have 10 little indians and then 10 little n-words and both of them were used in minstrel shows so that's where it comes from one seems to be more uk oriented and one more U.S. oriented? Well, I from think from what I can tell is that the more successful minstrel shows were using the 10 Little N-Words version, and those ended mm. up being the touring companies that toured Europe. Got it. So that's why it kind of entered the British parlance in that way. This is total coincidence, but I happened to be reading a short story by F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Cut Glass Bowl, written in 1920, which in its opening paragraphs references the 10 Little N-Words nursery rhyme. So this is absolutely something that was in existence and that Christie used. This is her first and most famous nursery rhyme novel where she uses a nursery rhyme to structure the book and to title it. It's just that she's drawing on something that is just on its face, obviously offensive to a modern ear and even to ears in the U.S. at the time, which is why the title was changed right away. Yeah. We talk a lot about American titles versus U.K. titles for Christie novels, and sometimes we even wonder why they exist. This is not one of those times. It's very it's, no. it's very obvious why there was a retitling going on here and why ultimately, within the English-speaking world, the title has settled down into, and then there were none at this point. That's why we are using that title for this episode. It's also why, by the way, we use <laughs> that title every title single our no, not major episode within our podcast. <laughs> yeah. One other thing that I would note is that they didn't just change the title. They changed a good deal of basically they did control the words F. In the yeah, book. they did control F and swapped out a good number of words in the book because suffice it to say um, Soldier Island in And Then There Were None is called that, and it's mirrored in the poem because it's 10 little um, soldier boys Right in the And Then There Were None version. It's not called Soldier Island in the original version. To be clear, it's N-Word Island in the original version. And every time the word soldier appears in this book, it was the N-Word. Uh-huh. And that's a lot. Yep. And the, so. figu- the figurines on the table... Yep. The shape of the island. Anytime it's referenced, that's not a soldier. It's It's the N-word. That is why the title change happened and the change to Soldier Island and Little Soldier Boys, which was never the way that the nursery rhyme originally went. That was obviously an intentional uh, choice there that the publishers eventually made. I will just say, isn't technically and then there were none grammatically incorrect? Shouldn't it be and then there was none? Hmm. There's disagreement on this, but I was taught to treat none as a contraction of no one. And then there was no one. I think that the more common usage would be to continue to use were. 
It's true, but this title is a mess. Let's just put it that way. The title is a mess. It's interesting that this is by far Christie's most successful book, and the title is a disaster. Well, it's a rhyme. It's the last words of the nursery rhyme. One other tidbit on the publication history is that Collins Crime Club actually got into a lot of trouble with Christie herself because when they advertised this book, they were so excited about what they had that they included way too much in the blurb that was giving notice to readers about the novel. Her other good friend, John Curran, this is what they wrote about. The island, the rhyme, the disappearing China figures, the realization that the killer is among them, and most damning of all, the fact that the last one to die is not necessarily the villain. One sympathies are entirely with Agatha Christie. All they omitted was the name of the killer. She lost her mind, actually, and wrote them a very strongly worded letter about it and said, you cannot do that again. She had a very rocky relationship with her at this point, I think, especially as her, she was getting more successful and beginning to hold her own, they did not always please her. And this was a big problem in her mind. Uh, understandably so. I mean, this book is the reason why Christie is the most widely read author, save the Bible and Shakespeare. It's because of this book. I mean, this book is what does it. So it's shockingly widely read. Right. On that note, there that actually note. is a book that has text. So maybe yes. we should talk about that. Yes. So I think that we should say up front, this is not a puzzle mystery, which makes us even more complicated <laughs> to talk about. I think if anything, we're dealing with a thriller. And actually, I would say one that still remains a strikingly modern seeming thriller to read. Well, it's so funny because we often make the distinction between thrillers and puzzle mysteries on this podcast. But when we say thriller, what we usually mean is a Christie thriller. Yeah, Tommy and Tuppence or Man in the Brown Suit. Yeah. Yeah, something romantic and adventurous and breezy and linear in its plot, just not as complicated as the puzzle mysteries that she usually did. That's not what we mean when we say thriller here. I think this is more the standard definition of a thriller, which is something that feels more modern than what the Christie thriller feels like and is psychologically complex and layered, but does not proceed via clues as a puzzle mystery does. No, it doesn't. So we can't really compare this to any of the puzzle mysteries and we can't really compare it to any of the thrillers. You know, there's it really no, is its own thing, right? There's not really romance or hijinks or clues no. and everyone is a victim and everyone is a suspect. So I guess on that note, let's talk about our... Uh, Victims and suspects together, yeah. Yeah. All these people, they've all been invited to the island in various ways. First up, we have Mr. Justice Lawrence Wargrave, who was lately retired from the bench and invited to a holiday on Soldier Island by Lady Constance Comington, who he has not caught up with in eight years since she had run off to Italy and Syria. And we have Vera Claythorne, who's an attractive, youngish games mistress at... What we're told is a third-rate school due, it would seem, to the fact that a child died in her charge when she was a governess. She's headed to Soldier Island because the school year is out and she's been hired as a holiday secretary to Mrs. Una Nancy Owen, who owns the island. Next up is Captain Philip Lombard, tall with a, a what, Catherine? Brown face. He's tanned. He is, although, let me just say, he is not the tannest. We will get to him I, momentarily. Is, we will get to him. We will. Um, he's got light eyes and an arrogant, almost cruel mouth. And he has been hired to go to the island, but clearly for some shady mercenary purposes and only because he is desperately in need of the hundred guineas that he has been offered. And he has been hired by... Mr. Isaac Morris, who is small and bald and shady and... Jewish and yes. uh, yeah, there's get some solid anti-Semitism here. 
and a fixer of some kind. And he is also in the employ of Mr. and Mrs. Owen. And he is the only one among this list who actually isn't going to Soldier Island. No, he's, he's sort just of doing in the, the, in the background. The hiring yeah. business here. Right. Miss Emily Branch is next up. She is a 65-year-old severe spinster with rapidly depleting funds. Her income is so much reduced and so many dividends not being paid. And she is invited on holiday by a UNO. And she can't really make out the last name, but she thinks it's Mrs. Oliver or something like that. You know, maybe Ariadne's sister, who knows? <laughs> she thinks that she met her summering at Bellhaven in the past, and she's been promised no nudity, no gramophones for her little holiday, and of course, a free island house. Right. And then we have General MacArthur. Not that one. Yeah. <laughs> for a book written in 1939, I was like, hmm, I know, okay, I know. Impression, this Agatha. one appeared to not have gone to the Philippines, but he's been invited by Mr. Owen to the island due to having mutual friends named Spoof Lagarde and Johnny Dyer, you know, from the war. And anyway, 30 years ago, although that seems not an accurate timeline, 30 years ago, a rumor had begun circulating about something he did during the war. And fellows were, quote unquote, rather fighting shy of him when discussing the old times. So now he's off to chat about the old times with fellows who want him there. Right. Since 30 years ago would have been 1909. That's curious. Yeah. By the way, General MacArthur was the only one to be renamed in the play as General Mackenzie, because at that point, when the play was written in 43, obviously everyone did know about General MacArthur. <laughs> Next up, we've got Dr. Armstrong, who is a Harley Street women's doctor with a very glittery reputation amongst his moneyed clientele. He seems to have built his esteemed practice after some problems 15 years ago due to drinking. And he's so esteemed that Mr. Owen has requested that he come to the island for a house visit for his wife, who is having health problems, and her nerves seem to be preventing her from wanting to actually go to the doctor. So they are paying heavily for his services to, mm -hmm. to get him out to the island. And then we have the previously hinted at Anthony Tony. Marston, who's six feet of well-proportioned, hot bod, crisp hair, tanned face, intensely blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> We've got it all. We've got the tanned face, the blue eyes, the crisp hair. And well-proportioned. Like, I had to, like, add the hot bod because you know that yeah. it was one step away from being there. It really was. And he's, you know, young <laughs> and rich, and he drives down in his Dalmain sports car. I'm not actually sure that Dalmain is a real company, but perhaps it is. It sounds real, though, it doesn't it? It sounds real, and if it is, somebody can, you know, yeah. feel free to send us pictures. He's invited by his friend Badger, and I got really excited for a second because I thought that this was a crossover character between And Then There Were None and Why Didn't They Ask Evans? <laughs> because you remember the friend who sort of is the deus ex machina of that, who saves them at, yeah, at the last minute? Yeah, it was the car place. Yeah, he has the car place. That His name is Badger Beaton, and unfortunately, this is Badger Berkeley. Very close, though. Very close, right? I mean, how many Badgers could there be? I like to think they at least know of each other. Do at least the car circuit. <laughs> Next up, we've got Mr. Bloor, who has gray eyes and a, a military sort of a face with a mustache, and he seems a little put upon. He has the whole list of island guests on his person, and he too seems to have been hired by the Owens for some kind of investigative job on the island. And then we have Rogers, who is the butler at the house. He's described as a tall, lank man, gray-haired, and very respectable. And last, we have Mrs. Rogers, the housekeeper, also Rogers' wife, and she is a white bloodless ghost of a woman, but very respectable looking. Her hair is pulled back. She's got a black dress, a queer light in her eyes, which makes them look kind of shifty. As Vera Claythorne notes, she looks frightened of her own shadow. 
Let's talk about the world as it appears to be, Catherine. All right. Well, we roll right into the book and meet all of these folks we've just discussed one by one, all of them en route to Soldier Island for the aforementioned reasons, along with the reason of curiosity, because Soldier Island has been all over the news lately. It was once owned by Mr. Elmer Robeson, an American millionaire. Oh, would that be an American millionaire with a weirdo name? Yeah, just, it just would. Checking. <laughs> it absolutely would be. <laughs> yep, yep. Couldn't be John Robson. No, had to be Elmer. Okay. Yep. And he built a uh, lavish modern house. Of course he did. And he sold it due to, quote unquote, the unfortunate fact that the new third wife was a bad sailor. It was sold to somebody mysterious. And now there's been all this speculation in the British tabloids about who possibly bought it. It was purchased by Mr. Owen. But since no one knows who that is, there's all this speculation that it's a movie star or it was, you know, a secret love nest for like a young lord. There's basically just like a ton of speculation over who, you know, bought this palace on this weird island off of Devon. Yeah, so all the guests have to take a train and then a car and then a boat to get out there. Right, so in Sticklehaven, not a real place, <laughs> within Devon, which is very much a real place, the travelers are met by Fred Narricot, who's going to ferry them over to Soldier Island. Narricot has never met Mr. Owen, and he notes to himself that the group is a queer lot, and that he'd been expecting something more classy, more like Elmer Robson's guests. And this Motley Crue certainly would not have anything to do with the movies. I believe his only exception there is, of course, Tony Marston of the Hot Bod. <laughs> we also get one other important piece of information from Narricot. You cannot land on Soldier Island when there is a southeasterly wind blowing, and it can be cut off by the weather for a week or more. Hmm, I wonder if that is going to be important information. <laughs> when they finally get off the boat and up the cliff, they get to this glamorous house. And there, everybody gets a cocktail and is, you know, immediately much happier with booze in hand. A, a running theme in this book. <laughs> they, they find out Mr. Owen is actually delayed until the next day, though. He's not there. We discover a few other things. We find that each guest room has a framed copy of a nursery rhyme in it, and uh, it's all the same nursery rhyme. Here it's Ten Little Soldier Boys, which is obviously a variant on Ten Little Indians slash N-words. The poem is obviously our guidebook to this macabre tour, but we're going to deal with each of the verses shortly. Just in general, the overall poem is about a diminishing number of soldier boys basically meeting their maker in one way or another. And to match the theme, there is a set of China soldier figurines on the table in the drawing room. Right. So convened together in said drawing room, drinking more. The guests are increasingly aware that the Owens are not there. No one has ever met them. And the others who were invited down by mutual friends clearly don't have mutual friends at the house. So this is all very weird. Then after dinner, a disembodied voice booms out of the ether. Ladies and gentlemen, silence, please. You are charged with the following indictments. And the voice goes on to list all 10 guests by their full names, providing a date and an accusation of murder. And we are going to cover all of these in due time, one by one. Until there are none. Or there is none. Wow. <laughs> so, of course, everyone is as shocked by this as by Kemper's adherence to grammar nitpicking. And so they are all speaking over one another, except Mrs. Rogers passes out. Rogers, her husband, and Dr. Armstrong end up providing her with brandy, and then they carry her upstairs to the bedroom where she's given a low dose of luminol to sleep. You know, brandy and luminol. 
Honestly, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> I think that's how I get on airplanes. <laughs> so back downstairs, several key things happen. One, Rogers admits that he put the needle on the record per Mr. Owen's instructions, and the record's label reads Swan Song. Two, everyone denies the murder accusations on the record, with the exception of Philip Lombard, who shrugs and admits that, yeah, he totally did do the thing he was accused of in an act of self-preservation. We'll get there in a moment. Three, comparing their invitation to Soldier Island, it becomes very clear that UN Owen is unknown and that they are stuck in a trap by a homicidal maniac. It's actually Justice Wargrave who makes that connection between UN Owen and unknown. Mm-hmm. This becomes even clearer mere moments later when Marston, at this point on drink number 5,245, <laughs> chokes on it violently, kills over, and dies, which I think is a perfect segue into our murder victims. Victim number one, Anthony Marston. What was his crime that he's accused of? Well, he ran over John and Lucy Combs because he drives at 100 miles an hour in those sports cars. In fact, he almost drove Dr. Armstrong off the road coming down to Devon. And it was only an accident in the sense that it wasn't premeditated, but it was extremely reckless driving that he has no guilt about whatsoever. And they were children, just to be clear. John and Lucy Combs were children. And he kind of blows it off as, oh, well, they shouldn't have been in the road. But he says it was damned unfortunate, and everyone realizes he's meant unfortunate for him. For him, correct, (laughs) yeah. If we go to the poem, the first verse of the poem is, Ten little soldier boys went out to dine, one choked his little self, and then there were nine. And so his death is potassium cyanide dumped into his cocktail glass, either as a suicide, which seems terribly unlikely, or because someone dumped it in there when he wasn't looking. On top of this, one of the little soldiers, the figurines, is missing. The rest of the guests determine to leave the island the very first thing in the morning when Naricot is to head back over for his daily food delivery. But, hmm, the next morning they wait and wait for the boat, and there is no sign of it or of breakfast. Eventually, Rogers comes looking for them, shell-shocked, and gets Dr. Armstrong to come look at his wife because she's dead. And she would be our second victim here. Ethel Rogers, whose crime was the murder of Jennifer Brady, her employer, a woman who had bad health and died on a dark and stormy night. By the time the Rogers noticed, apparently, about her health crisis, it was too late. And they did receive some money in her will. The assumption is that what they actually did was to hide her medicine and take off for the night, knowing that the absence of the medicine would kill the woman. Right. And Mrs. Rogers's verse is nine little soldier boys sat up very late, one overslept himself, and then there were eight. The manner of death here is unclear without an autopsy, but likely she was poisoned by a barbiturate of some kind uh, while she was already sedated. Right. So as this unfolds, it becomes increasingly clear that the boat is not coming. And not only that, there's not a phone on the island to call the boat. On top of this, General MacArthur appears to be going a little nuts. He keeps telling anyone who will listen that the end is coming and they're all going to die there. He's accepted his fate. Yeah, and everybody else's fate for them. Right. So um, Lombard, Bloor, and Armstrong, meanwhile, we should also note that Bloor originally went in with a South African accent pretending to be a rich man named Davis from South Africa. <laughs> his cover's blown relatively quickly. Pretty easily. No one, yeah. no one really believed him. 
No. So they searched the island for a killer, despite the fact that Soldier Island is a large, barren rock with sheer cliff faces. So the likelihood of somebody hiding is not great. But while they're doing this, Miss Brent continues to be a horrible nightmare person, mostly towards Vera. Then everybody comes in for lunch, and the men have found nothing and no one on the island. But guess who doesn't join them? General MacArthur, he's remained sitting outside where, you know, he'd been kind of in a shock mumbling to himself, but now he's not mumbling to himself because he's dead. General MacArthur, his crime was that he had married a woman, Leslie, who was significantly younger than him. Leslie had what he thought was a maternal interest in one of his officers, Arthur Richmond. Unfortunately, that interest wasn't so maternal. And she ended up accidentally sending a love letter bent for Arthur Richmond in an envelope addressed to her husband while he was on the battlefield. Oopsie! <laughs> pretty foul. Yeah, that's pretty bad. MacArthur didn't say anything, but he switched out the normal role that he would have otherwise given to Richmond and gave him an assignment that was guaranteed to end in his death. So he sent him to his death. And then shortly after the war, Leslie died of pneumonia. And General MacArthur's verses, eight little soldier boys traveling in Devon, one said he'd stay there, and then there were seven. And he has been sitting out there on the beach, essentially waiting to be killed. Right. And he was. He was bashed over the head with something, like a life preserver or something similar. Yeah, Armstrong is the one who suggests it was a life preserver, but it seems awfully weird to me that he doesn't show up with the life preserver in hand or have a reason why that would be the thing that he was bashed over the head with. Yeah, I mean, a life preserver doesn't seem particularly heavy to me, but I guess it must at least be one of those hard plastic life preservers, but Mm -hmm. still. At this point, Wargrave pronounces to the remaining guests what's obvious. The murder has to be one of them. He also declares the following, which I'm just noting because I think it becomes interesting later. He says, my point is that there can be no exceptions allowed on the score of character, position, or probability. What we must now examine is the possibility of eliminating one or more persons on the facts. The facts is emphasized. Mm. And so basically at this point, we end up with almost a faux trial and then a game of j'accuse. As the day goes on, the weather becomes increasingly worse. The entire group is becoming more and more paranoid, Miss Brent in particular. And things have also started disappearing, namely Miss Brent's gray knitting wall and a scarlet oil silk bathroom curtain. Specific. Day number three, everyone sleeps in. Why, you may ask? Because there was no one waking them up or bringing them tea. (laughs) In other words, we already know Mrs. Rogers is dead and Mr. Rogers. (laughs) Would you be mine? It's not a beautiful day in this neighborhood. It is not a beautiful day in this neighborhood, that is for sure. Could you be mine? Downstairs, there are only six china figures left on the table. Rogers is eventually found in the wash house in the yard, having been chopping wood. Except now, he's the one who got chopped. Won't you be my neighbor? Because Rogers is our next victim. His crime is the same as his wife's. And his verse is seven little soldier boys chopping up sticks. One chopped himself in halves, and then there were six. And he has been chopped through the back of the head with an axe. Please, won't you be my neighbor? Back in the house. Vera cooks for everyone with Miss Brent helping her. Although Miss Brent is now acting increasingly weird. And after brunch, she has a hard time even standing up. So she ends up sitting by herself looking out the window where she thinks she's getting increasingly drowsy and also seeing bees on the window. And then she 
Mies sort of hallucinating about her crime, which we'll get to in a second. And she hears these footsteps, essentially. And then she feels like the bees are going to sting her. And when she doesn't show up in a bit in the drawing room, the rest of the guests go to fetch her, except... Yeah, she's also dead. Her crime that she was accused of is the death of Beatrice Taylor. And as we know at this point, Emily is a religious fanatic. Unfortunately, she was also the employer of this 17-year-old, quote-unquote, good girl. She comes from like a good family and she's morally upright. And then it turns out poor Beatrice Taylor was not as buttoned up as that. She ended up pregnant. And uh, at that point, Emily more or less told her and by more or less, I mean more, told her that she was like worthless trash, whose parents were going to reject her, whose lover won't ever want her. And there's no place like in the world for such low life garbage. And then she kicked the girl out of the house without belongings or money or anywhere to go. And perhaps unsurprisingly, 17 year old Beatrice immediately killed herself. Emily's verse is six little soldier boys playing with a hive, a bumblebee stung one, and then there were five. It turns out she was probably heavily sedated by something. And then she was injected with a hypodermic needle filled with, once again, potassium cyanide. Right. So Armstrong was the only one to have a hypodermic needle, and it has gone missing. He also had sedatives on hand, obviously. This sparks yet another round of increasing paranoia, so much so that they conduct a search of the house as a group. There's a lot of suspicion thrown at Dr. Armstrong. Mm -hmm. They also are preparing food as a group, and then no one wants to eat anything that hasn't been unopened um, so that everyone can see what everyone else is touching. Vera feels the need to bathe. She goes up to her room and starts having PTSD flashbacks about the death of her charge. We will get to that. And then she feels something cold grabbing at her neck and she screams. The men come running upstairs only to find that she's okay, but for the fact that someone has hung seaweed from her bedroom ceiling to wrap around her. Back downstairs, they realize Wargrave hasn't come up with them and in the interim... He has been killed. I will pause from this summary that we're doing here just to make one comment, and that is that a personage no less vaunted than Raymond Chandler himself pointed out the really big problem with the plot here, which is that there is no way Vera Claythorne could have committed this murder. The way that it's blocked, Vera goes up to her bedroom, she screams, all the other men rush up, and what happens in the interim is that someone is killed Wargrave. There's no way it could have been her because obviously everyone was rushing toward her. Right. So that's a problem. Yeah. And it, it did is. not. I wish that I could say that it occurred to me when I read it, but it didn't. I only found out about that when I was researching the book. And I was like, that is an excellent point. That's a big hole. It's a giant hole. Let's get on to our victim, Mr. Justice Wargrave here. His crime is that he thought this criminal, Edward Seaton, was going to be declared innocent. So he manipulated the jury in order to force them to a guilty verdict, thereby sending Seaton to his death. His verse is five little soldier boys going in for law, one got in chancery, and then there were faw, <laughs> or four. And chancery, by the way, is just equity court. It's a type of court. So this is very apt for Mr. Justice Wargrave. And the manner of death is that he was shot through the forehead with Philip Lombard's pistol, which had previously gone missing, and dressed up in fake judicial wear, which is where the missing gray wool has gone. It is now a wig and the scarlet curtain, which is now a robe. You know, they move Justice Wargrave up to the bedroom and everyone else goes to bed, except there are sounds of feet in the hallway in the night and both Bloor and Lombard end up seeing the shape of someone sneaking out of the house. And then they realize that Armstrong isn't in his bedroom and that it must be him. So they chase him out into the night 
except he has disappeared. So in very short order now, we I guess have another, we either have another major suspect or we have a victim. So the crime that Armstrong had been accused of was that he had a drinking problem and he botched an op, like an easy operation at the hospital he worked. And the patient, Louisa Mary Cleese, died. And there was no real way of faulting him. I mean, it was an accident. It was just an accident that was unnecessary because his hands were shaking. He gets sober and he opened a Harley Street practice focusing basically on women's nervous issues. It's a massive success now, or was. So his verse, uh, four little soldier boys going out to sea, a red herring swallowed one, and then there were three. And his manner of death is unknown as he's maybe not dead. He's just missing. Now we're at day four and we've got three left. We've got Bloor, Avira, and Lombard, and they decide to SOS to the mainland with mirror signals. At this point, Vera realizes the red herring verse is referring to a red herring, which we refer to all the time. Don't have to explain what that is on this podcast. And she deduces that Armstrong must still be alive and is hiding somewhere on the island. Again, all the suspicion with Armstrong, and then it's still very strong at this point after he disappears. None of the three wants to go back into the house, but Bloor is hungry enough that he volunteers to go. Vera and Lombard stay with the SOS mirror business until they feel a thud and hear a cry, and together go back to the house. And guess what? Bloor is dead. On the terrace. William Bloor. This is our next victim. Bloor was a policeman who happened to also be a little bit of a dirty policeman with criminal gang ties, and he was forced through those ties to testify against James Stephen Landor, who was in fact innocent. And Landor was convicted and sent to prison where he died shortly thereafter. Bloor's verse is three little soldier boys walking in the zoo. A big bear hugged one, and then there were two. And his manner of death was being crushed by the marble bear clock that had been previously noted in Vera's room, which appears to have been dropped on his head. And I will also note, Curran mentions this, and I totally agree with him, that this is obviously the most famous and probably the best of all of Christie's nursery rhyme titles. And one of the reasons why the nursery rhyme books often aren't as good or they're just a little irksome is that she doesn't actually stick to the nursery rhyme. Like, it's just not a good fit in terms of the nursery rhyme. But in this one, she does it amazingly well. Like, these verses all really do fit with the murders and they're creepy and they're appropriate. This is the weakest one. It's a bear clock. Well, it is, but it is funny that it's noted, but we don't have to worry about that one because there's no zoo on the island. Yeah. I blame this book for the fact that Christy then went on to do so many of these nursery rhyme titles because it worked so well in this book. I mean, there are a lot of them too. All right, what happens next? Vera and Lombard aren't willing to go back into the house. They're kind of also still looking for Armstrong because presumably it was like Armstrong who must have dropped the clock on Bloor's head too. So they see clothes, what looks like clothes on the beach below. And heading down to the beach, they realize it's not clothes, but a man who is Armstrong. He wasn't missing at all, but drowned and finally washed ashore with the high tide. So Lombard and Vera, the only ones left alive, scramble for Lombard's gun to protect each other. Vera grabs it. Lombard lunges at her. And... 
Exit Philip Lombard. Exit Philip Lombard. And so his crime was, you know, when he was in military service in Africa, they were in a bad spot of it. And so he saved himself by taking the supplies and weapons and stranding the 21 East African tribesmen who had been part of his company, all of whom perished. And yeah, his verse is two little soldier boys sitting in the sun. One got frizzled up and then there was one. His manner of death is he's shot with his own gun when he lunged towards Vera. Right, so Vera is now totally shell-shocked, and she wanders back to the house alone. She drops the revolver in the hallway, right? Mm -hmm, And she shows up in her room, and she sees that a noose has been hung from the hook where that seaweed had been Mm -hmm. hung before, and there's a chair underneath it. And she's just basically gone at this point. She's totally bonkers, and she climbs up on the chair and hangs herself. So this is our final victim here, Vera Claythorne. And her crime is that she was the governess to Cyril Ogilvy Hamilton, a bratty rich kid. He's going to be a, a rich man. And she was also the significant other of Hugo Hamilton, Cyril's uncle, who lost that inheritance when Cyril was born and who can't afford to marry Vera as a result. So one day after Cyril begs for the umpteenth time to go swimming out to an island, she says, fine. She lets him go and she swims after him and she swims after him, but not fast enough for him to drown. And she gets swept out in the current, but it seems as if she was trying to save him, which is what she claims. Everyone believes her, too, including the boy's mother, who is actually Mm -hmm. extremely thankful to her for trying, but not Hugo. So Hugo knows that she killed him on purpose and she loses Hugo. And her verse is, one little soldier boy left all alone. He went and hanged himself and then there were none. And she hanged herself. So (laughs) that is the end, except, wait, it can't be the end, can it? Very close to it. Catherine, tell us about the world as it actually is. Okay. So as said up top, this is not a puzzle mystery. It is distinctly a thriller, and there are distinctly not really clues. So at at best, we get some hints, especially if we're looking in the rearview mirror of this. Here are some of the things that we know. Whoever UN Owen is had to, A, have a significant amount of money, because even if he bought the island at a discount from the American millionaire, our friend Elmer, they still would have had to have the resources for all the arrangements, the travel, the fees, etc. that went into planning this because it's elaborate. B, they had to have been planning this for a long time. And C, they have to have access to information or those who are in possession of it to know that level of detail and dates, etc. about every single person on the island. That's not easily accessible. You can't Google them. This is 1939. Whoever's done this has not been looking things up on LexisNexis and Google. (laughs) And D, they have to be an absolutely terrifying psychopath, even though that's not exactly a clue. The other ones are, though. E, it's likely someone who has nothing to lose. We can probably guess that. And I also want to note that the characters within this book talk about exactly zero of these things. So we as a reader, I think, would if we're actually trying to solve this, these are things that we would have to infer because they're all essentially valuable and they all basically do point you to who did it. But none of the characters right. in the book are questioning this. I have a couple of others that I think it's fair to argue are clues. I just have three. One is that whoever did it is obviously obsessed with the idea of extra legal justice or just issues of justice mm-hmm. in general. That's pretty clear. So looking for someone among this cast of characters who's involved in the law mm-hmm. is probably a good idea. That clearly points to Wargrave, who's a judge. We also get this glancing reference to Justice Wargrave having gone to Harley Street, right? which, as we know from Cards on the Table, is essentially functions like the movie cough 
You know yeah. how when someone coughs mm-hmm. in a movie, they're going to be dead by the end of the movie. If someone goes to Harley Street in a Christie novel or references it, that means that they have a disease that they're going to die from. That's actually, it functions the same way in Rebecca as well. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. So that means Wargrave is about to die. People do strange things. Nothing to lose. When they're about to die, nothing to lose. So that also lines up with Wargrave. And then there was only one murder in which the murder tableau was presented with bad lighting. And that was Justice Wargrave. The lights of the candles were very flickering and uncertain. And the only person who, of course, examined that body was Armstrong. But I just love this clue because bad lighting, we've talked about it before. Yeah, we have. Witness for the prosecution. It's always suspect in a Christie novel. Uh, Lord Edgeware dies. When the candles come out, you should start reading very carefully. Right. So Scotland Yard does go out to the island once the locals finally realize what had been going on because they had essentially been told not to respond to distress signals as it was, I guess, part of the Owens plan. The locals wait until the seas are less choppy, and they head out to the island to see what exactly is going on there. And what exactly is going on there is everybody's dead. <laughs> Jeez, it's like a corpse-orama out there. I think Fred Narricot probably has some things to say about what he saw. Fred Narricot is probably, like, hitting the local pub pretty hard after that. He might be the true final victim. Uh, possibly so. <laughs> But Scotland Yard comes out and they have no idea who did it because even Vera's chair was not kicked over like it would have be would be if she'd actually hung herself. The chair is neatly against a back wall. Right, that's the one piece of information we're given after the events happen, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Within this summation by the Scotland Yard folk. Yeah, so who killed them? That means that someone was alive after Vera was alive. The whole thing becomes circular then. It's a rat chasing its tail. So who did it? Well, luckily we have a message in the bottle. Literally. Hugh Nicholas Sparks. Dear Catherine, forgive me for being so angry when you left. I feel I've been lost. No bearings, no compass. You were my true north. Literally a message in a bottle washes up, and we are informed in an epilogue from the murderer himself that U.N. Owen is Justice Wargrave who writes this confession letter. It's a real psychopath letter. <laughs> Hardcore psychopath letter. It really is. Wargrave paints himself as a 30s Dexter. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. He tells yes, us that absolutely. he was born with the lust to kill, but he also had a strong sense of justice. So this was a real conundrum for him, as it was for Dexter. And he goes into the law because he gets to enact justice that way and also, you know, occasionally prod juries for what he believes to be the correct verdict. But as time goes on, that's not enough. And he desires to commit murder himself. This is what he says. I recognize this as the desire of the artist to express himself. I was or could be an artist in crime. (laughs) He then goes on to write, I wanted to kill. Yes, I wanted to kill. But incongruous as it may seem to some, not those who have watched Dexter, I was restrained and hampered by my innate sense of justice. The innocent must not suffer. So this is his grand scheme where he collects crimes that the law can't touch. And then, of course, on top of that is Harley Street Specialist, who was mentioned very early on, gives him a terminal diagnosis. So he decides, yeah, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. To be clear, he literally says he wants to go out in a blaze of excitement. This is not us. (laughs) Yeah, my death should take place in a blaze of excitement. I would live before I died. Yeah. Tie up some loose ends for us here, Catherine. He killed all of them. And then the only surprises here in his letter are he actually also killed Mr. Morris, the London fixer slash apparently dope peddler. Well, it's interesting, too, because he refers to the 10 victims and he doesn't think of himself. No, so Mr. Mr. Morris is one of the 10. 
Mr. Morris is ten. It's funny because everyone who reads and then there went on does think of him as a victim and forgets about Mr. Morris. But in his mind, it's ten with Mr. Morris, and he takes himself out of the equation. He does. So the other thing that we find out is how he appeared to be dead because you see the red herring in that clue. The red herring was not Armstrong's disappearance. The red herring was that Wargrave convinced Armstrong to help Wargrave fake his death so that Wargrave could then go spy on the rest of them. So then after Armstrong helped him, Wargrave pushed him over the cliff. (laughs) And then he kills himself by... This is perhaps one of the more ludicrous elements of this, but he kills himself by rigging the revolver, which he has found in the hallway, to the door handle of his bedroom with a piece of elastic so that he can cover the trigger with a handkerchief in order to keep Vera's fingerprints on it. And then it will re- the recoil from pulling the trigger will be thrown backwards by the elastic strap back into the hallway. And the elastic strap is just attached to his glasses and the handkerchief is then just on the floor next to the bed where his corpse is lying. It's a little Hercule Poirot's Christmas locked room ridiculousness, but in the scheme of things, I don't think it's that bad. No, it's just funny how overly how he explains it out in the letter because it seems like Christy herself must have been like, I'm going to take a paragraph plus to explain how this works. <laughs> yeah, she was like, I'm going to lay this out real clear. <laughs> <laughs> like, in case you want to build your own Rube Goldberg suicide right. device, here's how. <laughs> and then it's funny because Wargrave himself gives us what he believes the three clues are that would lead a reader <laughs> or a <laughs> member of Scotland Yard to know that he did it. But they're they're terrible. T- kind of terrible. They're clues. terrible. They're not clues. Yeah. So the first one is that Edward Seaton was guilty and everyone knew it, meaning that Wargrave was the only person who wasn't a murderer. He's like, well, of course, the one non-murderer would have to be the murderer because I actually put someone to death who was guilty, which is insane. <laughs> right. Like, yep, you are crazy. Then the red herring clue with Armstrong, because the point at which Armstrong was killed and the fact that the red herring verse was associated with him, he says, well, if you look at all the other people who were alive when Armstrong disappeared and the red herring business happened, I'm the only one that he would have trusted or who could have pulled anything off, which is another sort of bombastic conceited thing to say. Right. And then the most ludicrous of all is that by shooting himself in the forehead, he's marked himself like Cain as God marks Cain after Cain kills Abel. Oh, I Justice mean, Wargrave. Yeah. God complex much? Or I guess Cain complex much, but come on. But it is clever that, and he notes this, that because these people died in such quick succession and there was this lapse of time before anyone got onto the island and then an even bigger lapse of time before autopsies are being performed on any of these people, the order in which people died is just impossible to know other than the diary accounts that they do find, but those diary accounts support the theory that none of them could have done it because Wargrave obviously was one of the people who was killed within, quote unquote, killed within that succession of victims. So it is a devious murder scheme, to say the least. It is, and real psycho. Real psycho. Before we talk about rankings and just get into a, a more substantive discussion about the book itself, we should touch on the play because Christie adapted this novel herself, and she did so in 1943, so just four years after the book was published. And she didn't make many changes. I already mentioned the name change of MacArthur to Mackenzie. The biggest change, though, that she made was that Vera Claythorne and Philip Lombard are innocent. Yeah. So Vera did not kill Cyril, and Lombard did not leave those natives to die. 
and they fall in love at the end of the play. Vera does not fatally shoot Lombard. She shoots him and then she realizes, oh my God, what have I done? And because she doesn't have a guilty conscience, she does not even come close to hanging herself. And then Wargrave comes back onto stage after lurking in the shadows. Cackling with glee. (laughs) Cackling with glee and has someone, i.e. Vera, to tell what he did, which is how the audience is then clued in since they don't have the epilogue that we have in the novel. So that's why Christie had to make the change. Another reason why she made the change, which actually our friend John Curran brought up when we were chatting with him is that, and then there were none is obviously a incredibly bleak story as written in the novel. And in 1943, world war II was raging and a lighter ending was perhaps more in order for a play to be put on. And it's, it's way flirtier, especially the Vera-Philip relationship is much, much flirtier in the play. It's much flirtier. I mean, the problem is that once two of these people, once even one of these people is innocent, let alone two, I think the story just falls apart. I think the ending would have been hard to pull off if it were written well, but I also think that the ending is not written particularly well either. It feels like a badly executed version of a flawed concept, the end of this play. I understand why it was changed, so it's not that I necessarily... I mean, if that were the ending of the book, I would have been horrified. I find it much less appalling in play form. I would have rathered a fisherman find the message in a bottle and read it aloud. Right, I mean, sure. The thing is, it's the last few pages. It's not It's not even Vera and Philip being innocent that goes so completely off the rails. It's the last few pages when essentially Wargrave comes in like twirling his mustache and chasing her around with a noose. Oh, it's insane. He says, silence in court. This is a court of justice. You'll get justice here. It's just so cartoony. Yeah, it's mustache twirling broad and the tone goes really off the rails. Wargrave's final line before Lombard shoots him is, I can't spoil my lovely rhyme. My ten little soldier boys, you're the last one. One little soldier boy left all alone. He went and hanged himself. I must have my hanging, my hanging. Bang. That was some real acting talent on display there, Kemper. I am doffing my cap to our listeners right I now. Mean, thank you. I, I, think uh, that thank we should, you. I think that we should get right on staging a production of this wherein <laughs> you star as Wargrave. Apparently I've missed my calling. <laughs> the only other thing I think that we should note about the play is that Christy makes use of an alternate ending to the nursery rhyme. Lombard at the very, very end after shooting oh, Wargrave says... Oh, no, this says, is also really bad. <laughs> yeah, so he says, you know, there's another ending to that 10 Little Soldier Boys rhyme. One little soldier boy left all alone. We got married and then there were none. That's the last line of the play. But it is true. And she actually references that alternate ending through Vera's internal thoughts in the novel where she does say what happens again to the it's when she's kind of going crazy and she's like wait does he get married or mm-hmm. he hangs himself so it, it is a true alternate ending but it is interesting well you know and the, the rest of the play adheres very closely to the novel very closely and, and is quite ingeniously staged uh-huh. too yeah i yeah. agree it's just those last few pages where it's the tonal shift which is yeah. one of the worst things about it i think and we will talk all about this in our adaptation episode about it, and then there were none, but this is the reason why so many of the adaptations have this alternate ending. I never realized until doing this podcast that Chrissy herself changed the ending in the play. So this will lead to a lot of change within the adaptations, but we will talk about that in our next episode. We shall. Let's talk about our rankings 
for this novel, starting with plot mechanics, as we always do. I'm just going to say right now that I think this deserves a 10 because I think that this is a brilliant idea. I think it's hard to evaluate this idea in the context of not knowing about it. It seems so old hat because it's so well known. And Christie was not the first person to do it. There was pre-existing material that had very similar ideas. Ellery Queen, apparently, while reading this novel, had to stop working on a novel he was working on at the time, which also had a similar idea. She didn't invent the wheel with this, but she did it amazingly well. And I would actually like to quote from her autobiography to bolster my claim here, because this is the little that she had to say about it, and then there were none in her autobiography. I had written the book 10 Little N-Words because it was so difficult to do that the idea had fascinated me. 10 people had to die without it becoming ridiculous or the murderer being obvious. I wrote the book after a tremendous amount of planning, and I was pleased with what I had made of it. It was clear, straightforward, baffling, and yet had a perfectly reasonable explanation. In fact, it had to have an epilogue in order to explain it. It was well-received and reviewed, but the person who was really pleased with it was myself, for I knew better than any critic how difficult it had been. And that's why when we call this a thriller, we're not saying that in a disparaging way. We're not belittling it because this book was incredibly hard to craft. I think it's hard to appreciate how hard it was to craft and how well-crafted it was. And I say that with the caveat of that glaring plot hole I pointed out with Vera Claythorne. I say it with the caveat of, I know, Catherine, you have some issues with some of the means by which these people were lured to the island. My answer to all that is... And we can kind of talk about plot credibility at the same time because those two go hand in hand as they so often do in these discussions. But you can nitpick at this book as you can nitpick at any Christie novel. And in something this complex with this many characters and this tight of a concept, there's always going to be crumbling at the corners and a couple of things that you can point to that don't work. I wouldn't say that everything that happens in this book feels real, but it feels true. There is a truth underlining this book that comes from the psychology of the characters and from the fact that they're all kind of awful people and they all did awful things. There's this sort of underlying inevitability and doom that has this wonderful sense of truth to it that Christie achieves in other novels, but 100% achieves here. And to me, that's why both in plot mechanics and plot credibility, they're both tense. And I'm getting that true versus real thing a little bit. I'm cribbing from Laura Thompson, who wrote an amazing biography on Christie, which I can't recommend enough. It actually just came out here in the US. It's been out for a couple of years in the UK. But yes, there are things that might not necessarily be real about the construction of this ridiculous outlandish plot. And Christie certainly is not afraid of an outlandish plot, but it feels true. And I think that Mm. we should give it its due. And I would vote for tens. I know that you're a little bit lower though. So let's discuss. I think you're glossing over some issues. And I mean, like, listen, I, I, I'm not about to disparage the book because I think it is terrific to reread. I think it is so much nasty fun and it's so tightly written and we'll get to that in a second. It's just that just because it's very complicated and there are a bunch of moving parts, I don't think it's fair to gloss over the fact that from Wargrave's death onward, there is some fudging of what the mechanics are there of the plot. It's not only that Vera clearly couldn't have done it, it's the entire red herring situation I don't think is believable. And especially the fact that the Scarlet Oil Silk and the wool have been missing since very early on. So if you're Armstrong, then in order for this all to have worked, you would have had to believe that this missing stuff that has been missing for several days, that that conveniently is Wargrave's 
he has that despite the fact that he's only come up with this plot in like the last hour. So that's thing number one. Thing number two is the fact that, of course, Vera couldn't have done it. And three, yes, the lighting clue is a good clue. And yes, it's only Armstrong who checks Wargrave, right, for, you know, a pulse or whatever. They carry Mm -hmm. him up to his bedroom. Yeah, but they're out of their minds at that point. I do not for one second believe that they have to carry him out of a drawing room. They have to carry him up several stories to a bedroom, lay him out on the bed. And at this point, nobody notices that this guy is a living, breathing adult man. I have one even more damning for you, which will add to your argument, but I just don't care about any of these because to me, they feel like nitpicks within something that's brilliant. But Christie refers in third person narration to Wargrave's, quote, lifeless hand, which is not true. Right. Right after he's murdered, when Armstrong is examining him, she should have just said his hand, like he lifts up his hand, not his lifeless hand. So that's misleading, which you could argue she's breaking the rules of detective writing. She also at some level breaks it because we're privy to Wargrave's thoughts early on in the train and his quote unquote frustration about the woman who invites him to the island. And of course, none of it's true. I just don't care. It's too brilliant. I'm not the person that makes that argument on this podcast. I nitpick just as much. I just don't think this book is deserving a nitpick. I think it's it's an exception. I just don't agree that this gets a free pass when there are mechanical problems. It's not a free pass. The pass comes from being brilliant. It is overall brilliant. But, you know, I think that we have a lot of listeners who get frustrated sometimes when we don't like one of the book's as much as they do. And so, of course, a lot of this is subjective, but that's partially why we dock points, et cetera, for things that are mistakes or things that are uneven. No, absolutely. I just think this book, the brilliance of the plot mechanics and the brilliance of the weaving of the psychology and the characters that she's creating, and we'll talk about the characters in a second, but this is going toward credibility. It overrides it. This book just is at a different level. It's not an argument that I'm going to make very often, but it's an argument I'm 100% going to make here. Uh, Here's the other thing that I'm going to note is related to credibility as much as it is to mechanics, although I think it plays into the mechanics of it. This book is getting away with a lot of stuff that I think if it were a slightly less good book, you would notice that we're glaring. I mean, you just mentioned this, but yeah, I do have a problem with how all the people get to the island. It's ludicrous. What are the odds that Vera has applied to a secretarial agency that Wargrave knows which one of all the London secretarial agencies Vera will happen to apply to? She was not like sent something. This is something that she submitted to. So it's not like he lured her in. He knows that because it's the summer and she's a games mistress at a school. So the timing actually works out well. And he would easily find out which agency she was or that at. the Rogers just so happened to need something at exactly the same time that the Rogers also currently need a new gig or that, you know, Marston wouldn't happen to check in with his friend Badger before showing up. I mean, all of these things are things that in another book, you would be the one nitpicking. Of course, but that's the key clause of your sentence in another book. This book is better. There's a terrible version of this book, obviously. You keep the nuts and bolts of this book, but you take away the ineffable thing that she's doing here, which is what Christie so rarely gets credit for. You know, it's this sense of not just extra legal justice as a concept, but the idea that they're being killed in some rough sort of an order so that. Anthony Marston, who's a sociopath, and Mrs. Rogers, who Wargrave thinks is just controlled by her husband, are killed first, and then Vera Claythorne, who's 
a deliberate child murderer gets killed last. The descent into madness, it's like Lord of the Flies meets J.G. Ballard's High Rise. Like she's doing, she's doing what those books do just as well in her own way within the confines of a mystery with everything else that she's doing. She's spinning so many plates. This is a book about the psychology of fear and she's pulling it all off. I mean, this is why this book is as beloved as it is. I just don't care. I don't care about the nitpicks. This is why my position is 10 and 10. Oh, I mean, that's fine. But at that point, I don't even think that you should bother doing rankings. That would be my position. Well, I disagree with that. What were your thoughts for mechanics and credibility? I would go as low as an eight. But I mean, I can be coerced up on one of them, I guess. It seems like plot credibility was the one where you were a little bit more irked. Well, I mean, the the problem, again, is that we've conflated them so much in talking about this that I don't know that I can actually separate them out. So you would give eights to both? Yeah, but I could be willing to give a nine to one of them. Well, why don't we do nines for both? Because I'm irked enough that I don't think they both deserve that. I could give you an eight for credibility. Mechanics to me in that what plot mechanics means to me is just like the crafting of the plot. Right, and I'm going to tell it, I'm saying that I have some issues with it. I know, but that's where I'm unequivocally a 10. I think credibility is probably the category that's more appropriate for some of the nitpicking that we're talking about. So I can be persuaded to go a nine and an eight. All right, uh, that's plot fine. Plot mechanics, nine. That's plot fine. credibility, eight. Then for characters, we need to count our character score twice since mm-hmm. there's no detective here to stand alone. For the most part, the characters are fantastic. Right. I mean, we've kind of discussed why. I mean, I think I obviously feel like the characters are incredibly well drawn or I wouldn't think that her treatment of the psychology of fear and everything yeah. else was as good as it is. Wargrave in particular is just terrifying. And I have to pull out this one moment and it's before we even know that Wargrave is the murderer. This is what she writes about him and it's a moment where he's alone just before he's going to bed. Carefully, Mr. Justice Wargrave removed his false teeth and dropped them into a glass of water. The shrunken lips fell in. It was a cruel mouth now, cruel and predatory. Hooding his eyes, the judge smiled to himself. He'd cooked Seton's goose all right. So good. He's just so, oh, he's so creepy. And I I actually, I mean, Lombard and Vera are both great. I think Lombard and Vera are great. I have a, a little bit of an issue with Vera because I think it's like Christie's trying to have her cake and eat it too with Vera because she's a rather delightful character. She's contrasted throughout with Miss Brent until Miss Brent dies. And Miss Brent is another fantastically drawn. Miss Brent is what Honoria Waynefleet should have been in Murder is Easy. Yeah, Emily Brent has to be one of the most vile characters that Christie's written, at least in what we've covered so far. Nobody was shedding any tears that she was offed. She's a horrible person, and it made me think of that case a couple of years ago of the woman who was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for encouraging her boyfriend to kill himself via text. Do you remember that case? Yeah, I do remember that. But Vera, there's a little bit of a disconnect for me because she just, even though she has a guilty conscience, it just doesn't completely ring true versus the character we're presented with at the beginning of the story, that she's this child murderer. I think it's valid to say that maybe day after day after day after day of this and getting increasingly frustrated in her relationship she snapped. You don't just snap by bringing about the death of a child. That's not snapping. That's not having a bad day. You have to be mentally ill on some level. There has to be some level of of mental instability, and she does not seem like a mentally unstable person. No, although, you know, I mean, she's the earliest character that we figure out what's going on with because she clearly thinks about this literally all the time. 
It's true. I'm almost fully on board with Vera. There's just a slight, and I remember this from my first read of the book when I was in sixth grade or what have you, having an issue with Vera. I do also think Anthony Marston is a pretty weak character. Yeah, he's not good. And the Rogers are not well drawn. The Rogers are not great. Rogers goes a little cockney in the middle yeah, of the he book. Does. He start, there's this passage where he start, starts dropping his H's, although maybe we're supposed to believe that he's unraveling and that's his true accent. Well, you know, and he's been putting on a posh accent. It's, it's actually focused more in the play because when they're not around the guests, they have a different vocabulary, the Rogers. Right. I guess I could believe that. I actually kind of liked Bloor because I like the fact that when Vera and Miss Brandt immediately fall into the gender stereotype of fixing breakfast for the men after mm-hmm. Rogers is killed, but then Miss Brandt has been poisoned, drugged. essentially. Yeah. yeah, drugged, so she can't get up. And Bloor is like, well, I'm a domestic sort of man. I can help you clear up. <laughs> I know. It's like, oh, Bloor, that's sweet. Interestingly, also, Laura Thompson drew a comparison between Lombard and Monty, Agatha Christie's brother. And that is such a type within her novels. The man who's like a hero in wartime, but he's a ne'er-do-well in more peaceful times. He's not quite right. There's just something a little off about him. He's wild and immoral. It's a type, but this is one of the best drawn of that type, I think, within the of that we've come across thus far. I found him 100% convincing. Oh, definitely 100% convincing. And also, like, I hate to say this because I don't know what it says about me, but, like, strangely appealing in some way. There was something of the panther about him altogether. A beast of prey, pleasant to the eye. That's one of the early descriptions of him. Even Naricot kind of looks at him and is like, well, that one can maybe have something to do with the movies. Right. Um, you know, I would also note that Lombard's the one, basically from very early on, who suspects Wargrave. Yes, Lombard lays out the solution. Yep. When he, he and Vera are talking and Lombard says, perhaps Wargrave did it because he fancies himself judge, jury, executioner, and he's been doing this for so long. And then, of course, Wargrave, quote unquote, dies and his theory goes away. But yeah, he does. He figures it out. So funnily enough, I, I think we've been carping about Vera, but... I think I, even with my problems with Vera, come out a little higher on this than you do. My instinct at first was a 9 or a 10. Then I thought more about it, and I was like, not a 10. This isn't perfect, but very high. I would probably say a 9. Yeah, I I said an 8 or a 9. You would do an 8 or a 9? Yeah. All right, let's do a 9. Characters, it deserves a high score, for sure. Okay. Setting and tone, we're in agreement here, I believe, for a 10 out of 10. Yeah. Tonally, especially, I think this is without question from like a stylistic perspective. This is the best book that we've read that she's written. It's not even, it's not even close. It's not even close. I agree. There are so many wonderful things about the style and the setting and the tone. One that I would just like to pull out one passage here about the house, because what's so brilliant about this setting is that, yes, we're on an island and we have that whole isolation, which we've seen before in a Christie novel, but the house that they are in is an incredibly modern house Mm -hmm. with bright lights and clean lines. And here's what she writes about that. If this had been an old house with creaking wood and dark shadows and heavily paneled walls, there might have been an eerie feeling. But this house was the essence of modernity. There were no dark corners, no possible sliding panels. It was flooded with electric light. Everything was new and bright and shining. There was nothing hidden in this house, nothing concealed. It had no atmosphere about it. Somehow, that was the most frightening thing of all. Because, of course, all the terror is coming from... The people in the house. That's what's so scary. It's exposed. They're all exposed for being horrible, horrible people. If you're in a super modern house, especially a very well 
lit, super modern house, all the light gets pushed inward, right? And so that means mm-hmm. essentially you can't see out. Right. And I mean, I find that terrifying. It's like you're in a glass box. No, it's true. And it's something, we'll talk about this more in the next episode, but I don't think it's something that any of the adaptations ever captured. No, I don't think so either. And it's one of the most powerful things in this book, and it's so brilliant. Well, and I also like that the modern house kind of mirrors its island, because the island is all sheer stone cliffs. Mm-hmm. And no vegetation, no trees. Right. It's again, it's all about exposure mm-hmm. and nowhere to hide. Mm-hmm. There are two sections that I just want to mention as I think being some of the best writing that we've come across in Christie. One is actually, we, we made fun of it a little bit, but when General MacArthur is on the beach waiting to die and Vera comes and sits down with him and is kind of like, how's it going? And right. he tells her, oh, well, the end is coming. And she's like, well, what do you mean? But she knows exactly what he means. It's eerie and it's written with a light touch. And I just think it's really, really well done. And then just in terms of this whole Lord of the Flies-ish descent into madness thing, there was one passage where Christy is comparing the remaining victims to animals Mm -hmm. that I thought was so well done. And here's what she writes. They were reverting to more bestial types. Wargrave was like a wary old tortoise. Ex-Inspector Bloor looked coarser and clumsier in build, a slow padding animal, a look of mingled ferocity and stupidity about him. Philip Lombard's step was lighter and quicker. His body was lithe and graceful. Vera Claythorne was like a bird that has dashed its head against glass and that has been picked up by a human hand. It crouches there, terrified, unable to move, hoping to save itself by its immobility. And I was condensing that a little bit, but just really, really well-drawn descriptions. And then the engine goes out because Rogers isn't there to run it, so they have to start existing by candlelight. And there's lots of scenes of them eating tinned tongue so in the kitchen, staring tongue. at each other. So much tinned tongue. I guess there was no tomate poisoning, no bulging tins. Apparently. I mean, I would also it's say, so you know, one of the things that we have complained about, even lately in some of the novels, is repetition. Repetition? And there's no fat on this. There is not a word wasted. There's no fat on this, and I think that... It's so nasty. I know that I used that word before, but Mm -hmm. I mean, it just, it pulls no punches. And I think it's almost surprising because we are used, even in some of the more brutal Poirots, we're still used to having Poirot be there, right? You know, even if he's passing judgment, we still get little hints of empathy from him and Mm -hmm. the occasional glimpses of Papa Poirot. This does not have any of that in it. None. I mean, it's interesting that this is a book written at the start of the Second World War. And there's like a weird nihilism about it, too. It's extraordinarily nihilistic, which is not something that we say often about Christie. I mean, the point of Christie is supposed to be the opposite of that, right? We talk about how these stories flourishing within that war period, it's restoring order, it's sanity, right. it's bringing justice within chaos by the well, end. And giving, and the giving, evil has been stamped well, out. And I would also say this, the thing that they do for readers, right, is that it essentially gives readers the feeling of agency, that mm-hmm. you can solve a puzzle along with the book that you're reading. And that's always why we're so conscientious of making sure that there's not cheating, right? And mm-hmm. this is a book that, as we said, there aren't clues. So, I mean, you were not going to solve this. I mean, unless you like just completely trust Philip Lombard. The purpose of the book is is to bewilder the reader, not right. to allow the reader to figure her way out. 
of the right. story. Absolutely. And that is not And it's not giving normal. it's not giving comfort. It's not giving agency to the reader. You are dragged mm-hmm. along on it just like the people on the island are dragged along. Just like the people who you watch die. Right. <laughs> one yeah. by one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just funny that this book in so many ways is an outlier and yet it's the book that more often than not is the one that people have actually read if they've read any Christie. To the point where I think it still gets occasionally taught in school, just in mm-hmm. English lip book. Well, because and it, it's powerful. Like there is a power there and I think it goes all to this last category and mm-hmm. it is in the way that it's written and the way that she has set it on this island and in this house and just the barren of it all. I mean, it makes sense that people would study it. And like the best books, it feels specifically of its time, the time in which it was written, but then can also be applied to any time. Right. It feels modern. It feels so modern. I mean, the last thing I will say is that I was really struck when I was reading it at how organic and believable the way that the survivors acted felt as they were dwindling and going down, 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 the way that they started sticking together and moving literally as a group from room to room and standing around in the kitchen and opening up tins and opening up bottles in front of each other and not trusting each other and losing sleep and just slowly going crazy. You know, we've seen this book and other Christie's and other mysteries adapted as very silly versions of themselves. We've seen this story adapted in stupid ways so many times. But this story, the way that it plays out is not stupid. It feels really real as everything is falling apart. I'm like, yeah, I feel like I would react the way they are and I would do what they're doing because there's there's no silly moment of why is the girl who's being chased by the guy with the knife running up the stairs? There's no moment where I'm like, oh, come on, you wouldn't do that. Right. None. None in this book. It all feels inevitable. It all feels real or true. And it's really hard to write a story that way. So 10 out of 10 for uh, tone and setting to Dame Agatha for this one. Yeah. And so then last we have the stuck in its timeness. Yes. This is complicated. There is standard Christie anti-Semitism in it. We should just for a moment note that because the book is obviously known for having the N-word in the title and littered throughout it. But the anti-Semitism against Morris is it's there and not just once. I mean, and it's mostly coming from Lombard. He describes him as that little Jew at one point, the thick Semitic lips of Mr. Morris is yeah. the way he's described. And, I mean, and he deals in money and shady business. And it's the usual Christie stereotypical depiction of a Jewish person. It's noticeable, too, because the book does feel so modern. Yes. Mm-hmm. That it's glaring. The N-word business, I'm inclined to say it's a special situation because we know that Christie was referencing a nursery rhyme. And it's hard to discount it. I mean, if we just had picked this book up in 1940 saying, oh, the new Agatha Christie book is out, we would have picked up a book called And Then There Were None, which has no mention of the N-word at any point in it. It's true. Yeah, if we were living in the U.S. in 1940, then we would be reading what we are reading now. There's this little exchange between Vera and Miss Brent wherein Miss Brent references our black brothers, where she's disapproving of what Lombard did, and Vera starts laughing hysterically. And... That does lose meaning because it makes sense if the N-word is littered throughout the book with those little figurines, but it doesn't really otherwise. That's the only case where you could argue that it's within the text a little bit of an offensive allusion to that word, but otherwise... I would also make the argument that the naming 
of the island as N-word island Mm -hmm. creates an othering effect that these people have all come together from different places in England to this little stereotypically British seaside town in Devon. And then they are entering the unknown Mm -hmm. and crossing over to this dark island on the horizon that is completely different, right, from this cheery little village and completely different from what their lives are. And calling it the N-Word Island certainly confers a certain degree of separation from England, I think, that calling it Soldier Island has the opposite effect of, right? Mm -hmm. It has absolutely the opposite effect to call it Soldier Island. And so it's a little bit interesting to me because I think that to that extent, the word actually plays into what's going on in the context of the book. Mm -hmm. It's feeling to me like two deductions because I think all of that business plus the anti-Semitism is a lot, but... Yeah, it's hard because part of me was only going to give one deduction, but I think you're right. I think we have to give two. I think it's hard in 2018 to mm-hmm. completely remove it from context. Yeah, but only two. Only two, and I am. I think that we both agree that we'd almost rather not give it to, but I kind of think that we have to. We'd almost not rather give it to, but we have to, and we've certainly given others a lot more when they've been deserving of it. So two to me feels right. Yeah. Okay. So that gives us a grand total of nine plus eight plus nine plus nine plus ten minus two for 43 points putting, and then there were none, not a huge surprise here, in first place, in first place by five points, beating out the murder of Roger Ackroyd, poor Roger Ackroyd, first he got murdered, then he got pushed out of first place. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense to me. I'm not sure that and then there were none will necessarily remain in that spot as we go through the rest of the canon, but I think that it will be difficult to unseat it. Yeah. That is part one of our And Then There Were None coverage. As we mentioned, we will be doing part two and bringing that to you next time. And that will be an interview with our friend Mark Aldridge. And we will go over the many, many adaptations of And Then There Were None. That is next time. We would love to hear from you, especially if you have thoughts about And Then There Were None. We imagine you do. Email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at All About the Dame. Catherine is at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. We're on Instagram at All About Agatha. And we would love for you to take a moment to rate and review us and help other people find this podcast. It really, really helps us out. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.